someone were to ask me, you know, give me one word that would describe the world we're in today, just, just one word to describe it, uh, the word I think I would use is unstable. <laughs> we live in an unstable world. Uh, not only do, I mean, certainly, I, you know, I've seen things that are occurring in this day and age I've never seen in my lifetime. I've not gotten up on a morning and had to worry about a haze from a fire that's, you know, thousands of miles away, but we have to concern ourselves with and see evidence of a worldwide uh, pandemic that we had not so long ago. Uh, That's something I'd not seen in my lifetime. The world itself, the physical world, is unstable. But beyond that, we have world leaders who are totally unstable, who make decisions with no concern whatsoever about how it affects the world, how it affects the nation. Uh, They've got an agenda they're going to pursue, and they're going to pursue that agenda no matter who or what gets in the way. And those effects, of, the effects of that affect the entire world, affect each of us individually as well. Uh, but again, it makes no difference. So we wake up every morning not quite sure what's going to be happening that day. I mean, if you listen to the news, you'll turn the news on, and you're not quite sure what you're going to see on that news program because the world is unstable. Now, the problem is we as believers sometimes get accustomed, that, accustomed to that instability. Uh, we kind of get used to it as though it's kind of the way things ought to be. Uh, it's so prominent in our lives, we just sort of accept that as the way it's supposed to go. I want to say to you tonight, instability should not characterize a child of God. That is not where you should be, and that is not what the, how people should describe you. Uh, for those of us who know the Lord, the exact opposite should be true. We should be the most stable people on earth. Uh, we have believers, however, unfortunately, that are unstable believers. Uh, they're unstable. They go whichever way the wind blows. The spiritual wind will blow one way, and they'll follow that wind until it blows a different way, and then they'll go that way. Uh, they make decisions, spiritual and otherwise, based on the instability of their own lives. Now, what we've seen as we enter this book uh, is that James pulls no punches as far as describing what that instability looks like. And now he's going to give us a reason why it exists. Uh, we're going to start tonight in verse 8. So James chapter 1, verse 8. Why do we have unstable believers? Why do we have an unstable world? Uh, verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There's the reason. That's why there's instability in our world. That's why specifically there's instability uh, among believers. We have believers who are double-minded. In other words, as simply stated as I can make it, we have believers who are living with two minds in operation at the same time. So let's consider, as we begin tonight, this whole matter and this concept of double-mindedness. Here's the context. As you remember from last week, the context is having faith that God will do exactly what we ask him to do. If it's in his will to provide it for us, he will provide it. Now, that's the faith we have, but the unstable person doesn't have that faith, and they don't have that faith because they're unstable because they're double-minded. So think about a person that has two brains in their head. That's the best way to think about this double-minded thing. You've got two brains operating. One brain is focused on God. One brain is focused on doing what God wants them to do. And the other brain is focused on getting guidance from anywhere else. Uh, typically some secular place, some, some other uh, source of information that is not godly information. So any source that is not God is where the other brain goes. So with one brain, that person seeks God's will, prays to God, asks God for guidance on any particular matter they're dealing with. And then the other brain uh, seeks whatever information they can find on whatever the concern is. But information, again, that is secular, outside the will of God, outside the word of God, and outside of Christian principles, outside of the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's information from this other brain that seeks information from the latest experts or the latest trends. That's where it seeks information from or information that's based on financial principles or business models, something the world has come up with. So they seek God's guidance on one hand, and they seek guidance from any other secular source on the other hand. And that causes their life to look like a pinball game. 
They're just bouncing back and forth and up and down and all over the place. And rarely do they reach the goal, the spiritual goals they set, because they have two brains operating. Now, we've all got those two brains. The scripture calls it the two natures, the old nature and the new nature. And the issue simply is, folks, and I'll make it as simple as I can because that's how I learn. Uh, as simply as I can say it, whichever brain we choose to listen to is a brain that's going to operate. Whatever brain we choose to have influence, that's the brain that's going to have, uh, truly have influence over us. And if we allow both to be heard, if we try to listen to two brains at the same time, we become unstable and will not accomplish for the Lord what he has for us to accomplish. Now, I want you to see the main consequence of this, and the Bible gives it to us very clearly. Hold your hand there in James, if you would, and go back to the book of 1 Chronicles. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Uh, if you know of a believer, or if you find yourself at times listening to both those brains at the same time, here's what's going to happen as a result of that. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And when you get there, look at verse 33. 1 Chronicles 12:33. It says there, Of Zebulun, such as went forth to battle, expert in war, with all instruments of war, 50,000, watch it now, which could keep rank, they were not of double heart. These are soldiers that he's describing in the tribe of Zebulun. And he describes two characteristics of these soldiers. First of all, they were experts in war. And secondly, they could keep rank. Now, experts in war simply means they knew their enemy, they understood how their enemy operated, and they understood the tools of war that God had given to them to stop the enemy before he advanced. To keep rank simply means that they were able to maintain order as they marched. It also means they were fully willing and able to follow the commands of the general who led them. And so they weren't scattered all over the battlefield, going off by themselves, kind of wandering through uh, the battlefield as the war was going on. Uh, they were in a war, and they were keeping rank. They were staying in line like they were supposed to. Now, you're in a war tonight. You know that. You, you experience that every day. You're in a war. It's a spiritual war. And so we need to respond as a good soldier would respond. We need to know our enemy. We need to know the weapons that we are to use against that enemy. And we're to know how to use those weapons in the battle as it goes on. And secondly, we need to maintain order. March with God's army. Follow the leadership of our general, Jesus Christ. A double-minded person, a person of double heart, will be unable to do that. They won't be able to pull it off. Because they've allowed themselves to be distracted by that other brain, that secular brain, that worldly brain, they will not have the ability to use the weapon or understand their enemy like they should. Because they've allowed that other brain to have influence over them, they'll be wandering all over the battlefield, uh, out of step with their comrades, easily picked off by the enemy. And visually, I mean, in a representative kind of way, that's what I see a lot of the church doing, just wandering all over the place. No rhyme, no reason, no direction, just wandering and that's why we have so many problems in churches, why people have so many difficulties in church, why they go from church to church to church to church. They're just wandering. <laughs> They're double-minded. They listen to two brains at the same time and can't pull it together. Now, look at back at James, if you would, and look at verse 8 again. Now, notice what he says about this person who has this double mind. He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He is unstable in everything that he does. No matter what they do, there's instability. Uh, to me, it's like having spiritual ADHD. <laughs> that person cannot focus on one spiritual goal or one spiritual approach for any length of time from this to this to this to this. And so spiritually speaking, that person is useless to the cause of Christ. If they can't maintain the goal and go toward and hang on until it's completed, they're not accomplishing anything for Jesus Christ. 
They will not do what God has designed for them to do. Now, what is the obvious antidote for this? How do we respond to this? How do we stop this from occurring? Well, we saw it last week. Uh, The way to stop it is to determine to listen to one voice. Just listen to one voice. Listen to God's voice and God's voice only. Uh, Seek guidance from God's word. Seek guidance from the spirit of God. Seek guidance from spiritually mature believers. And then allow experience and the testing that God puts us through to increase wisdom And once God reveals his will to them, they'll accommodate that will by following through on it and not complicate it by seeking any guidance anywhere else. I will tell you, and again, this sounds odd, I suppose. There's just too much information out there. (laughs) Folks have gotten so focused on all the information, they forgot the fact they only need one book. This is the only book you need. (laughs) They've got every other book going on. All All you need is this one book. Uh, And that's all the information that you need to do what God has called you to do. So those who are able to keep that, listen to that voice, they will keep rank. They will follow the general's orders. And that's the only orders they will follow. Now, think about this. Think about a church that has believers in it that know exactly what the war is about and know exactly how to use the weapon. And think about believers who are able to keep rank. God's called them to a place and they maintain where God has put them and they follow through what God has called them to do and don't get sidetracked on anything else. Can you imagine what a church like that would accomplish? That's why, again, I don't worry about how many people come to the church. That's not my concern. My concern is how many believers who are coming are dedicated to doing what God has called them to do. (laughs) Because if we have 20 people that are totally dedicated, we'll do all that God needs for us to do. You don't need 100 people to do that. Uh, 20 will do it if you've got 20 people who are dedicated doing what God has called them to do. Uh, even in churches that are, that are good churches, they still have a minority of people doing the work. The majority of the people are wandering, <laughs> They're just drifting from wherever to wherever. Uh, if we can get uh, all those folks together and get them focused on listening to the voice of God and keeping rank, uh, we'll accomplish all that God has for us to do. Every believer needs to be focused on one thing, and that is following the commander. That's it. Just follow him. Don't worry about the outside influences. Don't worry about the outside voices. Uh, Just follow the commander. If we did that and did that consistently, there'd be no attacking people in our ranks. We wouldn't be shooting each other because we'd be listening to the commander. There'd be no concern about what somebody else needed and their needs being met over my needs being met. There'd be no concern about things not going the way that I think they ought to go or the way that I want them to go. If people were just listening to the commander and keeping rank, you'd have an army of believers who knew their weapon, who knew their enemy, who held rank, and would not let any other voice influence them, only hearing the voice of the commander-in-chief. And I believe with all my heart the reason that we don't get more done for the Lord is because there's simply too many double-minded believers within our ranks. That's what I think. I think if we get everybody focused on the same page, we have all our problems settled. So what we do is individually take personal responsibility that in our own lives we'll walk by faith and allow no other voice to be heard but the voice of God. Just listen to him. And when you hear a voice that contradicts his voice, shut it out. Don't listen to it because that's only going to carry you away and cause you to break rank. All right, look at verse 9. It says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. 
We have now come to the first major doctrinal issue in the, in the book of James, the first stumbling block doctrinally in this book. Now, we're going to look at the practical application of these verses in just a minute, but I want to look at the doctrinal uh, application of it first. Because if we read those verses as they stand and don't spiritualize them and don't make them say what they don't say, here's what we find. The doctrine being presented here is poor people are exalted and rich people are put down. And to be even more specific, uh, poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. That's basically what is being said here. And James says that in other places. Look at chapter 2, if you would. Look at verse 5. It says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Be, uh, but ye, ha- ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? Uh, there, again, we're talking about rich people and poor people, and he says the, ri- the poor are the ones in the kingdom and the rich ones aren't. Go to verse, uh, chapter 5. Flip over to James chapter 5 and look at verse 1. He says, Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who hath reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and ye doth not resist you. And he doth not resist you. The only thing those folks have done is gotten money. They're rich. And because they're rich, God has put all that on them as a result of that. I want you to go to Luke 16, if you would. Hold your hand there in James and go back to Luke 16. Because Jesus Christ presents the same sort of a thing in a story that he tells in Luke chapter 16. When you get there, we're not going to read the whole story tonight. You know the story. It's the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. But I want you to look at verse 22. Luke chapter 16, verse 22. It says, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The Lazarus, the poor man, goes to Abraham's bosom, a paradise, heaven at that time, and the rich man goes to hell. Now, if you read that entire story, you're not going to find anywhere in that story of Lazarus accept, accepting Jesus Christ as his Savior. You're going to see, not see the rich man rejecting Jesus Christ as his Savior. The fact is, Jesus Christ has not even died on the cross. There is no accepting or rejecting because of nothing to accept or reject. The only reason applied in the difference as to where those two fellows go is one fellow is rich and one fellow is poor. And the rich man goes to hell and the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom. Now, all that to say this, that is not New Testament salvation. You can spiritualize that thing all you want to. You cannot find New Testament salvation in what I just read to you, both in the book of James and also in the book of Luke. Because the only reason applied in the difference is being rich or being poor. Now, we get insight into this uh, from what Luke tells us and from what James tells us by looking at Ezekiel chapter 18. So now I'd like you to go back to the book of Ezekiel, if you would, and let's see if we can get some insight into what we're being told here by James and also by Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 18, we'll just read a couple of verses there, get to uh, verse 10. 
Ezekiel chapter 18, look at verse 10 when you get there. Ezekiel 10, 18 says this. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth alike to any one of these things, and that doeth not any of those duties, but even hath eaten up, eaten upon the mountains, and defiled his neighbor's wife, watch it, hath oppressed the poor and needy, hath spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, and hath not lifted up his eyes to idols, hath committed abomination, hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So there is a, a, an eternal fate that's being uh, designated there. Uh, he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about eternal death there. And the way you find, get this eternal death, one of the ways is by oppressing the poor and needy. It says it right there in the verse. Prophetically, this passage in the book of Ezekiel is dealing with the time of the tribulation. Not our age, not the church age, the tribulation age, the age that comes after Jesus Christ takes us out. During that period of time, the law is back in place and salvation is by faith and works, by keeping the law of God. And one of the ways to be condemned by God in the time of the tribulation, according to Ezekiel, is by oppressing the poor and the needy. That's what the rich man in Luke chapter 16 was doing to Lazarus. That's the same behavior James is describing in the verses in the book that we just read that address rich people. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. You'll see this again uh, in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, when you get there, we'll look at verse 41. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. This is Jesus Christ speaking now. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then, they, then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, we thee, unhungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto thee then shall he answer them saying verily i say unto you inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these ye did it not to me and these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into life eternal jesus christ there speak is teaching tribulation doctrine and the same idea comes through in what jesus christ is saying there the oppression of those who are in need Results in eternal damnation. And in each case, it is not the fact that they are rich that condemns them. It's the fact that they are rich and they oppress those that are poor that condemns them. So doctrinally, hear me now, doctrinally, the verses in James we just read, all those verses that we just read in James, the verses we read in the book of Luke, the verses we read in the book of Matthew, they all address the fate of the rich and it's directed specifically toward those who live during the time of the tribulation. They're living under the law and are required to fulfill the law in order to get salvation. Now, we know that is not church age doctrine. How do I know that? I know that because never once did Paul say to you in any of the writings to any of the churches that your salvation is based on how you treat the poor. It's not in there. There are those who will tell you that. Uh, there are those out there with the social gospel who will tell you the way to get to heaven is by treating the poor right. That's true if you're living in the tribulation. It's not true now. There is no works involved in your salvation now. So that cannot be church age salvation because that's not at all what Paul teaches. 
Uh, we also know this is not church-age doctrine because we'll go back to what we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, James is writing a book to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's writing to the Jews. He's writing to Jewish tribes. Therefore, he's writing to those under the law during the tribulation time. That's who he's writing to. Now, go back to uh, James 1 again and look at verse 9 through 11 again. I want you to look at verse 11. It says, For the sun is no sooner risen uh, with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. In his ways. Eventually, that rich man or that rich person is burnt up, just like the grass and the flowers burn under the scorch of the sun because of his ways, because of what he's doing, because of the oppression uh, to the poor that he's putting out through his behavior. Those ones of low degree are exalted because they are the oppressed and not the oppressor. Please hear me. This is not for the church. This is not for you and I today. Don't let anybody tell you that we need to take care of the poor in order to get to heaven. There are churches teaching that. They'll teach it Sunday morning. They'll, they'll, they'll hear it. But that is not gospel. That is not the word of God. That is mixing up doctrine with different dispensations. And by doing that, all sorts of difficulties result. Now, with that said, let's look at the practical application of this. Because what we do see in this, practically speaking, for those of us today, the lesson we learn is God places great value on humility. God places great value on humility. There are several things we want to be aware of in this regard. First of all, notice again, if you would, that James refers to, in verse 9, he refers to this person as the brother of low degree. Now, practically speaking, socioeconomic standing in this period of time has no effect on a person standing before God or their relationship to other believers. James is going to address this much more in chapter 3 when we get there. Every person in the body of Christ is a brother or a sister. All brothers are equal. All sisters are equal in this body, no matter what social position they hold. And that's got to be made clear to everybody who walks in these doors. Your religion is going to be shown by how you treat people that walk in here. We're going to see that a whole lot more in chapter 3. We treat every person as equal because in the body of Christ, we're all equal. There's no standing at all. Number two, a person can be both a Christian and be rich. And I say that because there are those who believe that's not true. <laughs> that if you have money, somehow you're sinning. If a person trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, that does not automatically mean that in order to be spiritual, they have to live the life of a pauper. There are those who teach that. That is not Bible. Just as being poor does not make, per make a person spiritual, being rich does not make a person less spiritual. Again, in this age, spirituality is not assessed by what we have. It's assessed by what you do with what you have. <laughs> That's how you assess spirituality. That's how you live out what God has called us to. Number three, we learn from these three verses that the poor are to rejoice because their financial position here in no way affects the uh, inheritance they're going to gain over there. It doesn't matter. A person may have very little here. That will all change someday when God rewards them who have been faithful to him in their service. It will be awful to me to be poor here do nothing at all with what God has given to a person and wind up over there with nothing as well. And it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> no matter what God allows you to have here, if you'll use that for his glory, if you'll use that to, to further the gospel and to do his work, God will have a full reward waiting for you over there. 
It doesn't matter how much you have. It matters what do you do with what God has given to you. And number four, those who are rich should not see the fact that they are rich as an indication of what is waiting for them when they see the Lord. I've never been rich. <laughs> I doubt that I ever will be. But rich people become entitled at times. They believe that because they have money, therefore they have privileges that nobody else has. In this society, that's true. That, that's very true. That's not how God works. God is not impressed with how rich a person is. That doesn't impress him in the least. If they've done nothing with those riches that impacts the kingdom, God couldn't care less. They make themselves small here uh, when they don't use what they have for God's glory and for the edification of the saints. Uh, so, And in doing that, uh, they uh, will be, lose blessing when they meet Jesus Christ. You see, what a rich person needs to do is take what they have and use that for God's glory, whatever that might be, however God leads them. And by doing that, they'll have blessing here from God and be overly blessed when they get over there. <laughs> whatever God has given to us, we use it for his glory. If we have a little bit, use that. If you got a lot, use that. But use it for the glory of God because there's benefits, eternal benefits to doing that. Number five, although this is addressed to the rich, it's a lesson to all of us. In the end, folks, our ways are going to vanish. Our ways are going to vanish. In other words, my plans and my way of doing things and my attitudes and my motives, anything, anything that has its source in me, someday it's all going to be dissolved. We're going to talk more about that Sunday morning. We can make all the plans we want to make. We can decide how our life is going to go to the smallest detail. If God is not the source of those things, those plans don't matter in the least. He doesn't care about your plans whatsoever. <laughs> He's got a plan he's going to perform. And your plans, if they get in the way, he'll just set your plan aside and do what he's going to do. Uh, someday our best plans are going to be dissolved. And I want you to notice, if you would, look at the verse again, verse 11. It says, For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, watch it, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. That grace there is talking about the beauty of it, the, the elaborateness of it, and so forth. Uh, listen, you can make beautiful plans. You can make elaborate plans. You can make magnificent plans. They can be beautiful, graceful plans. If God is not the source of it, you'll not see anything from them. If God is not the source of your plan, your plan is going to frustrate you. <laughs> it's going to drive you crazy as a believer. Uh, you may live a life and, and get through life, but it's not going to be a pleasant life if you choose to live life under your plans. I meet believers all the time who are doing just that. And they talk to me and ask me, why isn't life working for me? <laughs> I'll tell you why life isn't working. Because you're trying to do it with your plans. Let your plans go and use his plan instead. And then life all falls in place. It may not take you where you want to go. It's going to take you where he wants you to go. And that's a whole lot better. <laughs> a whole lot better. And notice he speaks of the, these flowers as being scorched. He speaks of the grace of them. So even though they're elaborate plans, they're going to burn up when God judges this world. So we are 11 verses into this book. 11 verses. And James has talked to us about testing from God and wisdom and faith and humility. In 11 verses, he's covered everything we need to hear as far as how to live this Christian life in 11 verses. We're not even, we're not even halfway through the book yet. And we're seeing all that already. If there was ever a book that we needed in these last days, it's the book of James. If you want to know how to live this life out before Jesus Christ comes back, 
get into this book and find out what he's saying to you in the book of James. You'll figure it out. God will show it to you. All right, look at verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now we go back to this idea again of temptation. And notice he says there uh, that blessed is the man that endureth temptation. This is a great example of how the scripture interprets itself. So we ask the question. We talked about temptation back in chapter, uh, back in uh, verse 2 and verse 3. Is this the same temptation? Are these the same things? Well, Check the context. Notice the next two verses in chapter, look at verse 12. Uh, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Keep reading. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So, we're not speaking of temptation that comes from God. This is not the testing we talked about in verses 2 and 3. How do I know that? Because he says, when you're tempted in this way, it's not of God. In fact, he says, this temptation is when you're drawn away of your own lusts and enticed. So here we're talking now, not of godly temptation, not of God's testing. We're talking here of temptation that has a source in the flesh, has a source in the Satan using your flesh to tempt you. And I will tell you, folks, the flesh will never tempt you to do something good. Never. And if it does, it's tempting you to do something good for, with, an, with an ulterior motive. <laughs> There's some other purpose behind it, and it's got, that's the path that you're going to use. He's got, the flesh will use to get you to that place. So we're talking about fleshly temptation here that is brought upon us by the devil using our flesh to tempt us. And notice this is a temptation that a believer is to endure. Endure. What that means is this temptation is going to come and it's going to hang around for a while. It's not going to go away quickly. And the longer you resist it, the longer it's going to take for that temptation to go because if you fall into it, the temptation ends. But in this case, if you resist it, it's going to keep going a while. It's going to become more intense. Now, I want you to hold your hand there in James, if you would, and go to the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at a verse that's written to the church of Smyrna. Uh, I'm praying about the possibility of doing a, a series on these seven churches in, in Revelation after we get done with the book of James. Uh, if we do that, we'll go into great detail about what these churches are all about. But I want to, just for tonight, just for the, our purposes, I will say to you that doctrinally, doctrinally, the, these churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation are churches that exist during the time of the tribulation. These are tribulation churches. They exist during that seven-year period of time. So that being the case, what God says of these churches doctrinally is doctrine for the tribulation time. It's not doctrine for the church. And I make that connection because I want to go back to what James says here in just a second. Now, look at verse 10 of Revelation chapter 2. He says, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. So there's the crown of life again, just like what James talks about in James chapter 1 and verse 12. In Revelation chapter 2, you have church members who are being instructed to endure what Satan puts upon them. And if they'll do that, they'll receive a crown of life. The exact same message that James is giving to us in James chapter 1 and verse 12. 
What do we know? We know, therefore, the doctrine of James chapter 1 and verse 12 is tribulation doctrine. This is not church age doctrine. Revelation chapter 2 makes that connection for us. And notice in Revelation chapter 2, uh, the, the crown is given to those who endure Satan's work unto death. The work kills them. That's why some Bible students have called this crown of life the martyr's crown. It's given to those who die for the cause of Jesus Christ under the uh, temptation, under the oppression that Satan puts upon them. So the one, ones being addressed in the book of James are living in the tribulation time under the reign of the Antichrist, doctrinally speaking. And the only way for them to get what is needed uh, to live is to take the mark of the beast. But if you take the mark of the beast, uh, you are automatically condemned to hell in the, book, in the time of the tribulation. So, if they choose not to take the mark of the beast, they've got a good chance of dying, either because they can't get what they need to, to live, food and so forth, or because they're killed for not obeying the law. Uh, heads are chopped off during that time for those who don't take the mark of the beast. And so what James is saying to them is what Jesus Christ says to the church in Revelation, endure all of that, even if you die in the process, endure it. And if you'll endure it, Jesus Christ says you'll have eternal life. And beyond that, when you get to heaven, I've got a special crown waiting for you, the crown of life, or what they might call the martyr's crown. So more than likely, the crown of life is not a crown for this age. Uh, believers in this age can probably not earn that crown because, again, doctrinally speaking, it's a verse to the time of the tribulation. But again, as in every verse, just because it is not doctrinally to us does not mean there's not practical truth for us. So it may not be a crown of life that we get, but God is going to reward those who do not give in to temptation that comes to them. God has a reward to those who, who do not give in to fleshly temptation that Satan presents before them. Now, you know this. This flesh is powerful. This flesh is deceptive. You can resolve yourself not to fall into the temptation of the flesh, and just as you resolve yourself, it catches you over here instead. You're looking for it to do something here, and it catches you from behind. It is a very deceitful thing, this flesh. All kinds of ways uh, to get you to fall uh, and, and fall into the, the, the temptation of the flesh and get you to sin. And because of that, it is Satan's greatest tool. He doesn't have anything greater to use on you than what you carry around with you all the time. That's his most powerful tool. And he'll use that tool to, to his advantage to distract you from doing God's work by getting you involved in things that satisfy this flesh, that make this flesh feel good. Not spiritual things, but fleshly things. And most of the time, for believers who are, who are grounded, that temptation is very subtle. He's not going to present something crazy to you because he knows you won't fall for that. But he knows he can slide things in here and there and make them uh, get those gray areas you talk about, you know. I hear to slide that thing in and catch you by it. Now, sometimes you are aware of what this temptation is before you do it. And sometimes you're not aware of that thing till after the fact. <laughs> uh, you got caught up in the middle of it. And before you know it, there you are in the center of it. But here's the deal. God does not expect a believer to fall for that temptation. We can't say that, you know, uh, God expects it or God approves of it or God overlooks it. It doesn't say that. God does not want us to give in to that. And James says, look at verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Amen. There it is. In other words, God will gauge our love for him by how often uh, and how often we give in to the temptation that's presented before us. 
God assesses our love for him by how often we fall to temptation. Because you see, folks, succumbing to temptation says that I love someone or something more than I love him. At that moment, I've chosen something that's outside of his will uh, to be involved myself in. That shows at that particular moment, I love that thing. I love that behavior more than I love him. I love some person. I love something more than I love Jesus Christ. When I give in to temptation, my mind is not on God. Because if it was, I wouldn't give in to the temptation. Uh, When I give in to temptation, it's because my mind is on something or someone else. And at the moment I give in to that temptation, I love that thing, I love that person more than I love Jesus Christ. Now, that might not be true the rest of the time, but at the moment I give in to that temptation, that's the truth. I've chosen to love something else more than him. So I can check my love for God by checking how often I allow the desires of the flesh to control my actions and to control my behavior. And it's going to be eye-opening at times to realize how often that's the case. Now, I don't want to belabor this point, but I do want you to see again what James says in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God will never tempt you to do evil. Never. That will never be something God would do. God is never the source of that temptation. Now, we do know that everything that comes into our lives, God allows to come into our lives. Uh, God controls it, and God makes the decision to let it come in. And so God allows temptation to enter, even though God is not the source of that temptation. God will never stir up your lust inside you to cause you to be tempted. God will never do that. But he will allow the flesh and the devil to present those temptations to you. And when it comes to those temptations, I'm often asked, why does God allow these things? I mean, God could stop it from occurring. Why would God allow it to occur? Well, I can't tell you for sure because I'm not God. I don't know. I don't have God's mind completely. All we can do is study Scripture and infer from what Scripture tells us why God would allow us to be tempted in the way that we are. And it goes back to what I said to you a minute ago. I believe God allows the temptations as a love check. Every so often, God just allows something to come in to see what we do with it, to see how much we really love him. And I also think God allows these things to come into our lives uh, to check our spiritual maturity. Because, you see, once we give in to the temptation, we have the opportunity to mature ourselves by looking at what we've done and processing that choice and seeing what happened and how it happened and learning from that by putting safeguards up not to let it happen again. (laughs) The reality is, and I know we're all human, so it's not always going to be the case, but the reality is the thing that tempts you should only tempt you one time if you fall to it. It should only be one time. Because once it happens, you should say to yourself, ah, I saw what happened there. I saw how that occurred. I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to put something up to keep that from occurring the second time. So if you're tempted, if you fall into temptation the second time by the same temptation, uh, that is a lack of spiritual maturity. We've not done what we need to do to put the safeguards up, not to let it happen again. So in the temptation God allows, uh, we can encourage, uh, we are encouraged to assess our love for him and work on loving him more uh, so that we don't give in to that temptation the next time it occurs. Now, I think that's probably why God lets it in. I'm not sure if that's the whole reason or not. Talk to him about it. He may give you other answers about that. <laughs> but there's other, one other point I'd like to make about this matter of being temp- tempted to sin. And here it is. The sin is not in the temptation. The sin is not in the temptation. Uh, there are those who will tell you that if you're tempted, you're sinning. 
That is simply not the case. Temptation is not the sin. We, are not, we do not sin when we're tempted. Uh, somebody has come up with five stages that occur in order for temptation to become sin. I put these on your outline tonight at the bottom of your outline. Let me go through these real quickly uh, with you before we close. The first stage of, of temptation is the presentation. That's where the temptation is made known. Uh, something comes into your life and it's tempting you to do something. The next stage is what we might call illumination. That's where Satan takes that temptation and tells you all the benefits of falling into it. <laughs> he tells you how good it's going to feel, how great it's going to be, what, a, what an achievement it's going to be to fall into that temptation. The illumination, as he begins to sell you on the idea, this temptation is the best thing you'd ever do. It's going to feel really good. Here's the next stage. The next stage is the debate. And that's where I see the temptation. I hear what Satan tells me about the, the, what, the benefits of it. And I begin to consider, maybe I should do this, maybe I shouldn't. Kind of begin to go back and forth. What should I do about this thing? Maybe it'd be worth doing. Maybe it wouldn't be worth doing. Uh, assessing all the costs and benefits of doing it. Next, you have the decision. And that simply means we decide to make the sinful choice. And finally, there's the action where I act on the temptation that's presented to me, and I do what the temptation has been uh, pulling me to do. When does the sin come? I believe the sin comes at the debate. That's where I think the sin comes. I think the sin comes at the moment when I begin to talk to myself about whether or not it'd be the right choice to make. You see, folks, Satan can tempt you all day long, and he probably does. He can tempt you all day long, and he can illuminate the benefits of that temptation to your flesh, uh, what it would do for your flesh by giving into it. But if you walk away and don't even consider the possibility of doing it, you can't sin. You'll never fall into it. There is simply no sin. However, if he presents that temptation to me, and shows me all the benefits to it, and I say, you know what? This might be a good deal. <laughs> this might be worth doing. I realize it's not in God's will, but for the moment, and, you know, how big a deal could it be, and what would God really say about it? I mean, I, I can confess it and be forgiven, so it's all going to be taken care of. Maybe I just ought to go ahead and pursue it this time. When I start doing that, Satan's got his hold. Because I'm going to almost guarantee you that if you debate it, you're going to do it. If you debate it, you're going to do it. <laughs> I can almost guarantee you that once you start thinking about it and considering it, uh, Satan's going to begin to illuminate even more. Not only that, but here's something else that will be good. Here's another good part to it. Here's something else that will benefit. And on and on we go until finally, you know what you say? I'll give it a shot. Can't be that big of a deal. I'll do it. And we fall into the action, and the action then is falling into the temptation. So, the idea is once the temptation occurs... Once that thing is illuminated to us, and then once I begin to con give consideration to it, what the flesh is saying to me, at that moment, I have allowed this lust to have its say, and by that choice, the sin has entered the picture. Now, of course, if I debate it and then turn away from it, I limit the extent of how that impact is going to have on me. But if I debate it, I open the door. It is very difficult to close a door to temptation once it's open. So the next time, there's a crack. There's a better chance I'm going to do it the next time. That's why the debate is where the sin occurs, because I've opened that door and made it possible for further temptation down the road to be a likely result. So, although the temptation is frustrating, although the temptation is annoying, although at times the temptation seems overwhelming, we are able to hold it at just that if we don't begin to consider the offer that Satan or the flesh is making to us. And I'll say something else to you. If you resist it, it's going to come on stronger the next time. 
And if I resist at that time, it's going to be stronger. Satan knows your threshold. He knows you better than you do. He knows how far to take this thing, and he'll take it to the top level he can possibly take it to with the belief that somewhere along the way, you're going to begin to debate. But I will say this to you as well. I can be tempted a thousand times a day, and if I never react to the temptation, I'll never sin because the temptation is not in the sin. If I never consider that temptation as an option when it's being presented, I will never sin as a result. So here's the guarantee. I will make you a promise tonight. You ready? You're going to be tempted. Your flesh is going to tempt you. Satan is going to use your flesh to tempt you. You may be tempted right now while you're sitting here. (laughs) You'll be tempted when you walk out the door. Sometime tonight, there's going to be some sort of temptation that's going to come. But the truth of that also is you never have to allow that to become sin if you never see that temptation as an option. I'm going to tell you, I know we make it difficult. Nancy Reagan said it. Just say no. (laughs) Just say no. You can stop temptation in its tracks just by saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's just that easy. And I realize the battle is there, but that's the bottom line to it. And the best way for us to grow in our love for Jesus Christ, the best way to grow uh, stronger in him is simply to say no to temptation. You'll build spiritual character. You'll build a spiritual resilience that will not fold when the next temptation comes. And if I will do that, uh, that love that I have for Jesus Christ will begin to push out the love for anything else. And once I achieve that, I'll never fall into sinful temptation. So you know what you do tonight and from the days ahead? Work on your love for Jesus Christ. Get into that book and see how much he loved you. Think back on your life at how much God has done for you and how much he loves you. My goodness, tonight we heard praise after praise after praise after praise. You know what all those praises are, folks? Those are demonstrations of how much God loves you. So it is. Get a hold of that and get a hold of that love and make that the focus of your life. And if you'll do that, you'll never never fall into temptation. It simply won't happen. All right, let's stand.